Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, blue-collar rocker, Eddie Money. Hey, hey, good morning. How you doing, man? Thanks for coming. Snow and all. Thank you. You're one of my favorites. Eddie Money created some of the catchiest and most enduring hits of the late 70s and early 80s. Selling over 28 million albums and scoring 23 chart-topping singles, Eddie Money defined an era. It was his straightforward lyrics and his punchy, full-of-heart singing style that set him apart. Born Edward Mahoney in Brooklyn, New York, Eddie's father and grandfather were police officers. They wanted him to follow in their footsteps, but Eddie had other dreams, becoming a rock star. So in 1968, Eddie packed his bags and headed off to sunny Berkeley, California, where he soon made a name for himself. Eddie was riding high until his rock and roll lifestyle caught up with him. In 1980, an overdose nearly cost Eddie his life and inspired his most important album, 1982's No Control, which went platinum. A few years later, he would come back with a mega hit, Take Me Home Tonight. The song reached number four on Billboard's Hot 100 and was nominated for a Grammy. Eddie Money's brand of blue-collar rock still energizes audiences and fans today. 
I caught up with Eddie Money in New York. Well, have a seat and welcome to chaos. Thank you so much. I was just looking at some old footage of you from like the uh, early 70s, 73, 74, with the bushy hair and the sideburns, man. You've been around the block, Dan, really, and I love the interviews you're doing. They're fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, you're still touring. You, you still play a lot of dates? Yeah, I do. We just did a show actually in uh, Key West, Florida, with this lady named this transvestite that comes down in this big shoe every year. Her name is uh, uh, Fuji, I think. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, I love playing. I think you're really going to have a good year if you have You should start off your new year by doing a show on New Year's Eve. It'll bring you luck the whole time. But it was a fun show. We do. I do about maybe uh, anywhere from 80 to 100 dates a year. You know, I got five kids. I'll do anything to get out of the house. You know? <laughs> well, five kids and how many pets? Is it eight or nine? We got eight dogs. No wonder you play so many dates every year. You run a high overhead operation, man. What well, question? Is the thrill gone? I mean, obviously, you, you like to do it or you wouldn't do it. Right, yeah. But when you're up and coming and you're, you're reaching the height of the mountain right, yeah. for the first time, there's a special thrill to that, whatever your craft or profession. Right, that's very but true. But that's long, that's long in your rearview mirror. So right, my question sure. is, when you walk out there now, is anywhere close to that feeling? Is the thrill still there? Tell you the truth, man. If you write songs like Baby Hold On and Two Tickets to Paradise and all the hits that I have, I mean, you talk to people that listen to my music, and it brings back a certain time in their life. Like me listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles when I was 15 to 16 years old. So we've got a lot of fans out there that love my material, and it brings it back in a certain state of mind and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I think that I was blessed. i got to thank the big guy upstairs because I was blessed uh, to write some really very popular songs. I mean, I had a psychiatrist tell me that I represented the American male alter ego. Is that the reason some people describe you as the blue-collar brand of rock right, and yeah. roll? Do you agree with that? I do, yeah. I'm at the blue-collar rock, you know, which is, uh, like, I'm very big in Detroit, which is a very, you know, a lot, a lot of my fans work on the police department, the fire department, but then I got fans of the doctors and lawyers and stuff like that. But my music is a lot like, uh, like the Beatles or like... Uh, Otis Redding was, you know, he sang from his heart, or Mitch Ryder in the Detroit Wheels. You know, you just that that urgency is, is what I'm into, you know. Well, no one should be surprised, given your own upbringing and your background. Your father was a policeman. My dad was a cop. My grandfather was a cop uh, in New York City. My father was a cop in Long Island City right over here. Uh, my brother retired as a deputy inspector, and I've got a couple of nephews that are on the job right now. So you come from the long blue line. Yes, I do. Yeah. And you were part of it. You trained. Yeah, I, I worked as a police. Uh, I went on the police department, and I was getting ready to go into the academy. But I wound up. Uh, I took typing in high school, because I got thrown out of shop class. You know, the shop class would take you two years to make the solid bolt. So I wound up taking typing with an all girls class, because kids didn't type. Boys didn't type and cut in high school. So I went on the police department. They said, "Can anybody type?" I looked around the room and said, I could type, so I wound up typing the roll calls. So I wound up working 8 to 4. I didn't work around the clock. Mm -hmm. So my, I kept my rock band alive. I had a group called the Grapes of Wrath. We came up when Billy Joel was coming up, and, uh, and they moved out to California, and I quit the police department to move out to California, but they weren't really taking the music as seriously as I was. So I lived in Los Angeles, and I hitchhiked all by myself with nobody up to Northern California. And... Uh, I went to work at J.C. Penney's as a receiving clerk. Then I worked on Telegraph Avenue during the Berkeley riots. I mean, I mean, I've had a very, very interesting background. But um, I think Berkeley, California, was a great place to be. You know, it was like uh, 
Berkeley, California in 1968, I don't have to tell you, it was an amazing place to be, yeah. you know. Well, it was the epicenter, yes, as somebody epicenter. saw it. Right. To the protest or resistance movement to the war. Sure. Counterculture. My brother was in Vietnam at the time. Yeah. And uh, I, I went on the police department, and I quit the police department. Then I went to college before I went to UC Berkeley. But as soon as I got a good lottery lottery number, I was out of there. I got, you know, my lottery number was like, you know, 322. Hey, see you later. So I never finished. I wanted to actually go back and get my degree. I majored in business and minded in music. Well, when you moved to California, you, you broke off with the police department. Yes. You, you were about to enroll in the New York Police Academy. Right, yes. You're right in line to do that. Big decision. Did you talk to your father about it? Well, you, you know, my dad, uh, my dad was, you know, I wanted to grow my hair long. Back in like, you know, back in the late 60s, yeah, hair had to look really good in the back. I mean, you remember yeah. you had long hair, so. Yeah. My dad was a cop and he used to work around the clock. And when he was doing four to twelves and I'd be playing my music on the on stereo, you know, he'd wake up and, you know, he had a really quick temper, that Irish temper and stuff like that. But I didn't really want to see myself in uniform for the next 20 years of my life. I wanted to be a rock and roll star. Matter of fact, I wrote a song on my first record called Want to Be a Rock and Roll Star. <laughs> and your father said what to you? My father didn't, uh, he wasn't into it at all. You know, it was just crazy in those days. And then my, my roommate was growing marijuana. This was back in 1968. It wasn't even my weed, and it was dead anyway. And I wound up going to jail for his plants and everything. It was really, it was very hard on my parents, you know, when I was coming up. But uh, eventually I got a, a deal with, uh, with Bill Graham. And I played Saturday Night Live. We did Midnight Special. We did all the shows. And we had a couple of really big songs. Baby Hold On to The first record sold like two million copies. And I remember my father, I played uh, Madison Square Garden with Cindy Lauper. It was a really a great show. And I was back there and I was sweating a lot. And I was there back there looking at my wardrobe case. And my father was across the room. And he said to me, look at you. Look at how tired you are. If you would have stayed on the job, you would have been retired. You could have went out on three quarters. You know, you know how it is. That cop mentality, you know. But he had to be very proud of He was him. a great guy, my dad, you know. Stay with us as Dan Rather and Eddie Money keep the music alive when we come back. This is The Big Interview with Dan Rather. You're tuned into the big interview with Robbie Krieger and John Densmore of The Doors. Here's Dan Rather. You had success. You said, you know, you broke with the family line of, of police tradition. Right, yeah. You moved to Northern California. You worked at pennies. You worked at odd jobs. But eventually you hit it big. Yeah, really? I mean, I, I, I was very, very determined uh, to, to become famous. I mean, in those days, I think I worked harder than a lot of other artists. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember going through the top, the windows of the top windows, crawling through the top windows just to get on the radio. I went the extra mile and I had a great manager. My manager was the late Bill Graham from uh, Bill Graham East. I want to and, talk about Bill Graham. Right. My question at the moment is, looking back on it with time to reflect, did success come too early for you? I can't say too easily because you worked right, to get it. Right. But did it come too early because it came young? Well, I think when I made my first, I, I, when I made it, I was about 27, I guess, when I was actually on the radio and had hits and things like that. But 
I think, uh, you know, when you think about when you start working, I mean, I started singing rock and roll when I was, uh, before the Beatles came out. I was singing, you know, Chuck Berry songs and James Brown songs, and then the Beatles came out. But, I mean, when you think about it, I think I was really working at my craft at about 14 or 15 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was always the lead singer in a band because my, my, we had five kids. We really didn't have a lot of money. So I really didn't have, a, I didn't have enough money to really be a guitar player and buy equipment. I couldn't be a drummer because my parents didn't want to buy me a set of drums. So I had to be the lead singer. And if you're going to be the lead singer, you've got to be a, this lead singer of the band. You've got to be better than everybody else, which thank God I was. Well, when you first heard it, what was the breakthrough? Well, we played the Yes Festival, which was amazing. That was a, with... Uh, Bill Graham put on the S Festival, and there was like 650,000 people out there. And we did a song called Give Me Some Water. Dan, it was the middle of the day. I said to Bill, let's do the song, Give Me Some Water. In the middle of the song, let's spray the crowd with the hoses. Bill, give him some water. And that was like, you know, when I did that, everybody just it was like, give me some water, shot a man, and it, get in the hoses, Bill. And it, just, it was really a great night, too. And, and, you know, I've done a lot of really big shows. Playing with the Rolling Stones was great. I played with The Who. I mean, Bill Graham was a great manager. And he unfortunately died in a helicopter accident, you know, when coming back from my... Huey Lewis show. He was a, a wonderful man, and he was really into. He always wanted to be a lead singer, but he wasn't a good singer. So vicariously, he lived through me. In 1980, you were at or near the top, right. and you've been at or near the top for quite a little while. But you almost lost your life. What happened? Uh, what happened to me is, uh, in those days, you know, I was drinking a lot of vodka. Not after work. After work is when I, you know, when I did my shows, I did my shows straight. But after work, you know. I was, you know, alcoholism runs in my family, and I was, I was probably an alcoholic, and I was probably a, a cocaine addict, too. I'm still a cocaine addict, and I'm still an alcoholic, but I'm a, I don't use. I quit smoking cigarettes. I don't get high anymore. I got a beautiful wife, and I, I changed my wife. You know what they say, a happy wife is a happy life, as you all know. Right. One night, I was drinking a lot of, a lot of vodka, and I thought I was uh, snorting some cocaine, and it turned out to be this phenytoin, which is the same thing that killed uh, Prince. It's a very bad drug. It's like a synthetic heroin, and it's killing kids, which is horrible. But, uh, yeah, I fell asleep and went into a semi-canatonic state, and my nerves didn't twitch. So I killed the sciatic nerve in my left leg, in other words. So I couldn't walk for like 10 or 11 months. And I remember using a walker to get out of my bedroom to get to the music room to write my biggest record, which was No Control. At the very lowest moment, did you have any doubt that you could and would make it back? Well, I was very determined. Uh, I think the best part about everything was bad about the overdose, but the only thing good about it is, is when I made the album cover for Nose Control, I was down to 165 pounds and they put a massage suit on me. I looked like a million bucks. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, I mean, the whole record Nose Control is you don't really have to be rich and famous, you know, to co- drive your car off a bridge or to do a drug that you're not aware of and stuff like that. I've got friends of mine that have lost their children, you know, my, my kids' age, to, you know, heroin overdoses 
or car wrecks, being drunk and stuff like that. It's you know, it's very tragic. You got to. Um, I got. I've got my five children. I love dearly. I mean, I do everything I can for them. But I'm actually glad that they all still live at home, because I can keep an eye on them. You know, make sure that everybody's on the right path. And how do they feel about that? They're very comfortable. There's always milk in the refrigerator and two pork chops on the table. <laughs> well, I want to talk about no control because that brought you back. No yes, question. it did. When you were writing it, I'm always interested in the process of writing it. You're coming back from this terrible illness. What are you thinking, and how are you putting this music together? Well, the, the most shocking thing to me is when I woke up uh, after I was out cold, I guess, with that, when my nose weren't twitching, I woke up, and I, it was like if my leg was asleep, and I wasn't asleep. I killed it. I killed the, the, she killed the sciatic nerve of my, my whole leg. And I also knocked out my kidneys. I had to get my kidneys dialysized. It was a very bad overdose, and I've got to thank the doctors and the nurses. But the craziest part about the whole thing, Dan, is a very true story. I remember being on the operating table with, with the doctors with the mask on, and, and Baby Hold On came on the radio, which was my big hit. And they're going, this is Eddie Money. This is his song. And they started singing Baby Hold On. I could, and I was going, it's got to be a bad dream. It was a bad dream. But there I am, getting my kidneys dialysized, trying to put my life back together, and Baby Hold On is on the radio. Is that ironic or what? When MTV launched in 1981, Eddie Money was its crown jewel. His music videos, known for their funny narratives, quickly became fan favorites. In the wake of this, you became, too strong to say, a heartthrob on MTV. A lot of people have gotten how big MTV really was when right, it yeah. first hit in the 1980s. Sure. But you were right there at the beginning, one yeah, of the reasons that I, MTV took off. That's very true. I mean, Bill Graham, was a, he was a very smart man. He said to me, this is, I think this MTV is going to be really, really big. So we, uh, we made videos. First video I made was was Shaken and Abalonia, who was in Purple Rain with Prince, very beautiful girl. She was a Prince. The first thing she ever did was was the Shaken video, and we did. And videos are really big, and we made some really good videos, and uh, it really helped out my career. I got to tell you, I think that might be an understatement. Really helped with the career. Yeah, it, it was. Well, I used to be cute, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they tell me. <laughs> well, after. The, the monster album that No Control became, and, right. that, and that's not an overstatement. Your career lost a bit of momentum. Yes, it did. It went through a period, and uh, your album featuring Take Me Home Tonight right. with Ronnie Spector from the Ronettes went to the top of the charts. Yes, it did. Now, how long did that take? And tell me about the album. Well, uh, I used to produce a producer called Richie Zito. He, was, he used to play lead guitar for uh, Elton John. 
He was up and coming, and he was a very smart man. Right. And he said to me, Eddie, I'm going to bring you back. You've got a great voice. You're a great writer. We're going to put you back in. And they turned me on to the song, Take Me Home Tonight. And the chorus was, Take Me Home Tonight, which was a great chorus. But actually, then it had two choruses, because the second chorus was, Be My Little Baby. Be My Little Baby by, by Ron S. So uh, it, it, to me, it's one of the best. But the night we met, I knew I. One of the greatest rock and roll songs in the world. And to have, I called up Ronnie Spector. I said, Ronnie, this is Eddie Money. She said, you got that song too? Take this on the radio, yeah. I said, I got a song, I've got a song here. It's a tribute to you. It's called Take Me Home Tonight. And the second chorus is your original chorus for Be My Little Baby. And she came in the studio at a, on a cheap bottle of wine. <laughs> she just knocked it out. She was just fantastic. Take me home tonight. And I put her in the video, and she looked amazing in the video. And it really, it skyrocketed to the top. It was really a, a big hit for me. By the way, when and how did you decide to change your name? Your birth name is Maloney. Right. When and how did you decide to make it Eddie Money? Well, I had some friends of mine that was fooling around with uh, words and stuff like that. And they said, you know, if you take the laugh out of Mahoney, I said, what do you mean take the laugh out of the money? I said, the A and the H. You could be Eddie Money. I said, I don't have any money. That's a great name. Call yourself Eddie Money. And there was a baseball player. His name was Money at the time. I think he was funny. He played for the Brewers. But I thought that the name Eddie Money, it sounded pretty cool. I kept it. Well, it does sound pretty cool. You know. But my nickname is Freddie Food Stamps. Because Tell me about that. <laughs> well, because when I was coming up, I really, as my father used to say, I don't have a pot to piss in or a window to throw it out of, you know, these old New Yorkers. <laughs> but in the beginning, my name was Eddie Money. I call myself Freddie's Food Stamps. And now when I, I email people, I don't sign my name Eddie. I sign it Owen, Owen Money. Because <laughs> you got to remember, I mean, I pay... I pay 57% of my money goes back into the government. We live in the greatest country in the world. I don't mind giving back to, to, to the government, but a lot of my money gets eaten up. You know, I pay between sales tax and all the taxes and, and the per diem and stuff like that. I walk away with less than half of what I make. You know. But that's not bad. No, it's not bad. You know, It's not good, though. I mean, I'm not Billy Joel. <laughs> I just want to... You're listening to the iconic Eddie Money, Dish the Truth, with Dan Rather in The Big Interview. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Let's listen to history come alive with Eddie Money. One, two, three. <laughs> yeah, we got that down, Dad. Are we going? Here we go. For Eddie Money, life on the road isn't exactly what it used to be. What I tell you about the film, don't play that, Julian. Lay out on that, please. His band is now made up of his children, and his wife of over 30 years is his manager. But the family affair doesn't stop there. There's a new reality show featuring the entire family called Real Money. What happened in the car? I just bought you this car. I just bought you this car. The third car you wrecked. That is not the third car. That's the fifth car. I give up. 
You raise the kids. But they're adults already. You're starting this program on here on Access TV. Right. Uh, reality program with your wife, five kids, what is it, eight or nine dogs, you said? Right. Uh, well, pets the whole nine yards. But question, and you said yourself that, that your wife, and by all accounts, there's no doubt about it, is an absolutely wonderful woman. That raises the question, wonderful as she is. But am I going to get lucky and, tonight? And she's been with you, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a fair question, but I, mean, I won't hotel room, I might be a little different. <laughs> but the question is, Wonderful as she is, what the hell is she doing with you? Because you can make a point. Okay, listen to rock and roll legend, right, all yeah. of that. But problem man, beginning with a capital P. Well, to tell you the truth, uh, she just got fed up with me. I mean, completely. And uh, we separated for three years. I mean, we still were close. And she still loved me and I loved her. But it just was, you know, I can't live with you. You're, you know, I don't like your friends. I don't like this. I don't like that. And uh, it was just time for me to, you know, to go back and, and change my ways, you know. I just thought that uh, I had the, the great wife. I got the, the kids are great. Uh, all my kids were born with the fingers and the toes and things like that. And uh, I just wanted to go back and see what I could do to make things right, you know. Well, now let's talk about this new program, the reality program. Right. Again, first of all, why do it? I mean, you don't need the money. You, right. you have fame. You have uh, financial security. And there's something of a risk of doing one of these reality programs. Well, you know what? I think that it's risky, but I think that I have very five dysfunctional children, and I, th I think that the TV is really going to like them. They're all different, but they're all in the, the world of their own. Like my youngest son has got blue hair, and he started giving me some crap about, uh, about a month and a half ago, and he plays drums for me on the road. But he, he, my son's got a band called Des Money in the Phase, and, and my son is really a good drummer, and he plays everything perfect for Desmond's music. But then I turn around and he plays for my music. He won't long, long songs that I need that are very important to me. People want to hear a song called Give Me Some Water, and he doesn't want to turn around and learn the dawn, the dawn thing. And it really got me mad. And, and for some reason, I turned into my father. He was in the laundry room, and I turned into Eddie Munster. And he started giving me some crap. And I said, who do you think you are? And he had the, the laundry door shut. I was so mad I took the door right off the hinges. And I had him against the wall. And I was pulling him and who do you think you're messing with? I wasn't going to hurt the kid, but I wanted to scare him a little bit, you know. You're not really good to hurt the kids, but you, you, you get to the point where you snap. I mean, my old man used to snap, too. I told the teacher to go, you know where, in high school. And I had a, a very timid Italian, his name was Mr. Procassini, the nicest guy in the world. He was the assistant principal. And he called my father up because I had told the teacher where to go. And my father heard that. And he whipped me from one end of that from one end of that office to that like I was a dish rag. He was so mad and his temp he just clicked. You know, what the, I never got a, I never got in another trouble in school again. Well, uh, you mentioned the children several times. What's it like working with the kids? Uh, not, not just on your stage and your touring and they're part of your musical life, but working on this new reality program? Well, I think, you know, to me, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I want everything to be just so. And Julian, I think it's a lack of respect for me that he does what he wants on the drums because he comes up with these really big endings and everybody loves the fact that, you oh, Eddie's working with his kids, his daughter sings great, his son's playing guitar, he's got his son on drums. But when I'm doing Wanna Be a Rock and Roll Star, one of my first big hits, he's got the kick in the wrong place. The kick is he's got it on the four rather than on the one. 
So I'm calling up his old drum teacher that taught him how to dr play drums when he was little. I said, you got to get him back in the studio because I'm going to be using him on the road again. And it drives me crazy when he's not playing my songs right. You know how it is, Dan. Jesus. Well, if you're crazy at this stage, what are you going to be like near the end of the first season of producing this thing? Well, every time I got up, they put a mic on me, which was really crazy. And I told them I didn't like horseback riding. So what do they do? They take us horseback riding, and they give me the biggest horse in the stable. And I'm looking at this horse, and I start feeding them apples. And the cameras were on us, so I wanted to do a good joke. And I said to the horse, why are you so, why the long face? It was a good joke on TV <laughs> with the horse with the long face. But they put us on the horses, and this one horse was kicking the other horse. And all of a sudden, the horses were going crazy. And I went, why did you put me on this horse? Drives me crazy. They got you doing a lot of things you really don't want to do. <laughs> well, the name of the program is Real Money. Right. Is there real money in it? Come on, just the two of us. It's very, it's very realistic is what it is. I mean, uh, the producers and everybody, they go right for the heart, and they really want to the inside scoop of everything, you know. And uh, I think that the kids are very honest about it, and uh, they're very talented. And it's like the King family. If you're going out there and you got your son on guitar, your other son on drums, and your daughter out there in a pair of cool boots, you know, doing all the high harmonies, people love the show. It's a family show. They really get a kick out of it. That may be true, but question, what about what's called, quote, the reality TV show curse? Are you worried about that? I'm not really, because if you think about it, I don't do anything really to get in trouble anymore. I don't go to clubs, I don't drink, I don't drink and drive, I don't get loaded anymore. The kids are all pretty much settled into life. I mean, I, I, I'm happy with the kids, everybody's in the right direction, and uh, I'm very happy. You know, I, I take my wife to church every Sunday. It's the only nap I get all week. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to pick up on that, though, because... My wife says to me, no jokes, please. <laughs> When we, when we started this conversation, early on you talked about your early piano lessons from the night. Yeah. Uh, you talked about what you call the big man up there. Right, sure. And you just mentioned that you, you try to go to church pretty regularly. Have you always considered yourself a at least relatively religious person? Well, I went to Catholic school when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, when you're Catholic, you're born guilty. <laughs> what they say, you know, but uh, I take my wife. I take my wife to church on Sundays. But being a Catholic, I mean, I was taught by the Dominican nuns, and you know, they tell you the only true church was the church that was started by Jesus Christ, and then by you know, that whole thing. But uh, they kind of brainwash in a way. But I do pray. I do believe in God, and I really think that uh, He helps me out a lot and keeps my family safe. And you know, I, I do believe in a higher being. I do. He helps me. He helps me to stay sober, and. Uh, I appreciate that. I don't think I could do it without him. You're listening to The Big Interview with Dan Rather. Today's guest is Eddie Money. Stay with us. You're tuned into The Big Interview. Today's guest is Eddie Money. Now, here's Dan Rather. One of Eddie Money's best-known songs is Two Tickets to Paradise, off his self-titled debut album. The song continues to pop up everywhere. I've got two tickets to paradise. I've got From television shows, 
So we all set? Two commercials. I've got two tickets to paradise. Pack your bags, we'll leave tonight. Uh, it's two next month, actually. And now, Eddie Money has written a musical by the same title that he hopes to bring to Broadway one day. Two tickets to paradise. Now, what's this about you trying to write a play about two tickets uh, to know, paradise? You know, actually, I went to see Jersey Boys. And to me, when I was growing up, Big Girls Don't Cry, Sherry Baby, Walk Like a Man. I mean, come on. The, I mean, the four seasons were like God's gift to rock and roll, Frankie Valli's voice and stuff like that. And I'm watching Jersey Boys, and it reminded me of the camaraderie that I had with the Grapes of Wrath, the band that I moved out right. to California with. Right. And then also I remember, then I got a, a really big record deal. I was on Saturday Night Live. I was the was first rock star to do Mike Douglas, the first rock star to do uh, you know, all these early shows, uh, Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin. Merv Griffin really helped me out a lot. He was a great guy. And just having that early success w was really put me in the driver's seat. But then again, I was young, I was crazy, and you know, I didn't smoke, stop smoking cigarettes. I was still smoking weed. I was drinking vodka. I was drinking, you know, I was just, I was a mess. And the play? Oh, the play is called Two Tickets. I brought you this copy. The play's about me quitting the police department when my father was Patrolman of the Year. True story, he was Patrolman of the Year. I quit the police department and moved out to California. And then I got a job with a band that were both the lead guitar players for the John Lee Hooker band. They were blues guitar players and they were called the Rockets. And I started singing with the Rockets. And then after a while, these guys were all living at home. You know, I was living on powdered milk and Chef Boyo di Ravioli. I was struggling with all these guys driving their parents' cars and stuff like that. It drove me crazy. And I was really the writer of the band. And I realized I was a singer, and I realized I was actually the star of the band. So what I did is I fired the whole band on stage, which was crazy. It said, Eddie, Sp Eddie Spaghetti goes nuts as patrons fled. I love the line, as patrons fled. <laughs> but then I, I, I started another band with Jimmy Lyon, who was really a great guitar player. John Nelson, a great guitar player. My other guitar player, Tommy Gervin. I've always been very famous. I've been very good guitar players. Is this something you're writing mostly for yourself, or do you have some realistic hope of having a stage on, say, Broadway. Well, the thing is, is I'm putting the play on at the Kodak Theater in Rochester, New York. And I've written a lot of songs. See, the songs in the play, when I was a kid, my parents used to go to the Broadway shows. Damn Yankees, Oh Happy Fella, right. Carousel. And they'd come home with the records. And I had three little sisters. And we would act out the songs to the, you know, West Side Story. We'd right. act out all the tunes. So I was really very fond of people like Roger and Hammerstein. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write songs that were not rock and roll for the play. I've got a song called I Only Want the World for You that my mother sings to me when I'm leaving home. I have a song called I'm Singing to a Picture Hawk called No More Goodbyes. Another song called this train don't stop here anymore. Well, I used to be the man, had lots of friends and lots of fans. And the pictures on the wall said I used to have it all to your heart made of the plans. It's like a very, it's, it's a very touching song. And in the play, I'm singing it in the wheelchair. And I got somebody cleaning me up and going, what was it like to be famous? And the blue light hits me and I start singing this song called The Train Don't Stop Here Anymore, which is a great song written by a good buddy of mine, by Benny Mardotas. What I like about the play, it has songs in the play that are not rock and roll. They're like, it's like Carousel, The Yankees, 
West Side Story. It's a real Broadway piece. And I, I'm very happy. I've had, I, we put it on. I got a good, uh, I put it on at a college, at Malloy College in, in the Nassau County. And we got really, I got a really nice review in the, in the, I think in the New York Times. But now putting the play on, I'm very serious about it. I got, a, I got some really, but now I don't have to pick the actors or anything else like that. Now I've got a really great theater, the Kodak Entertainment Center. I got a great staff up there. They're going to give the kids vocal lessons. They got real dancers up there. In other words, all the work and all the money that I put into it when I made it, you know, I did the play twice before. I think it's going to be a lot better. It's a heavy roll of the dice anytime you're trying to put on a big Broadway play, but right. I wish you good luck with it. But I want to come back to something that you reveal from it. You said that one of the songs you wrote for this play, Two Tickets to Paradise, was your mother is singing to you as a young child. Yes. Can you sing me a bar or two of that? Uh, I only want the world for you. La da da do 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 da. I can't remember the lyrics right now because I'm, I'm so like, you got me a shock here, but it, it's a great. I raise you kids, I do I can. I want, if your father's mad, he might be sad, but he only wants the best for you. I'll give you a copy, but it's a very, it's a moving song. Oh, but I, I get, I get the feel for it. And it's right I, in here somewhere. I could probably and, find and it. Mentally, it comes to my mind a very young Eddie, if you will. Right. And your mother was singing to you. She, she wishes great things for you. Right. Yeah. That my mother and I, we share this with a lot of people. Their mother hopes great things for them. Sure. And. My question is, do you think that had something to do with you actually achieving great things in your own field? That your mother's support, I mean, whether she actually sang this particular song to you or not, obviously she gave you the kind of en encouragement and yes. belief that you were, could be something special. Right. And my question is, do you think that was the big difference maker? I would have to say yes. Uh, the play just, rep it, it just represents uh, the American dream. You know, I mean, having to be on the road with the Rolling Stones, playing Madison Square Garden, playing the US Festival. I mean, I got lucky, but not only I got lucky, but I took very serious piano lessons later in life to learn how to write my songs. I took vocal lessons from a lady that taught Frank Sinatra, Barbara Streisand. I mean, I really wanted to do all the right things. And I really think that this play is gonna be a good stepping stone for me. When I think about, I just lost a good buddy of mine, Tom Petty. You know, we lived in the same town, and uh, at 66 years old, I was trying to tell Tom, you can't smoke two six packs of cigarettes a day. It's going to come back and it's going to kill you. Now, the thing is, I'm glad, I'm very proud of the fact that I've got nine years of sobriety, and I actually quit smoking cigarettes, which is good. I don't take any pills. I don't get high anymore, which is great. And uh, I just feel like I'm on the, I'm on the right track, you know? I've never seen you clean. Come on. But I wrote two tickets to Paris. That was a long time ago. Are you done with all this yeah. stuff? I can't tell you how many Cialis's I wasted, but, you know, I forgot to clean the counters. You're well known for your sense of humor. That's what they tell me. From where did you get that? Did it come from your mother, your father, or is it something unique to you? I don't know. I just like to make people laugh. Well, heard any good jokes lately? I got a lot of great jokes, I tell you. This guy says, I wanted to, I wanted to buy something really nice for you, you know, to come in here. And the guy said to me, I got a dog that talks. I said, what are you talking? He says, I have a talking dog. I said, no. He said, come on over my house, I'll show you. 
So one of the guys' house went through the living room, opened up the back door. There's a dog, dog in the bed, and the dog starts talking. Where you been? I've been waiting for my bottle of water. I'm going, this dog is talking to me. So the dog says to the owner, go get you and buddy a couple of drinks and shut the door on your way out. So the dog, the guy goes to get me a couple of drinks. He shuts the door, and the dog says to me, you know, this is actually my second owner. I said, what are you talking about? He says, this is my, my first owner. I worked, I busted up a, a Moscow, a heroin ring in Moscow. And I busted like 11 really bad criminals in Moscow. I said to me, and the second thing I worked in Saudi Arabia, I broke up six terrorist rings in Saudi Arabia. And the guy came back and I said, wow, this dog's amazing. I said, how much money do you want for this dog? He said, $25. He said, $25. He says, that dog's full of the He's never been out of the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was prepared to tell you, don't give up your day job. Don't give up your music. But not a bad tale and That's well told. Joke. Give you credit. By the way, back to the kids and performing. Let's talk about your daughter who, who sings and is quite a talented singer. Oh, she's very talented. I mean, she's very, very talented. She comes out and, you know, she steals the show. I'm never gonna leave you. Can't you believe me? Never gonna let you go through. All right comes out and she's very, very animated. Her name is Jessie. We call her Jessie Money. And she does that part, the Be My Little Baby part that uh, Ronnie does in the song. But she does all the high harmonies and the show is really animated. I mean, when I got her out there working the crowd with the tambourines and the boots on, I mean, she's really, it really is the show. And then with Desmond doing his songs in the middle of the set and people, wow, this kid's really good. And then you got Julian on drums. It's a family show, you know. And people really like the family show. But then again, I like working with my musicians because they've been with me for 30, 30 years. It's not like working with the kids. You're trying to find out what room is Jessica in, why is it Julian in the car, who, you know, you know, it's drives you crazy. Hey, you've been terrific here. What question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Uh, well, you know, the thing is, is, uh, I lost my mother in 2004. I lost my father in 2006. The thing is, is what you never get over is losing the folks. I'm very happy that my siblings are still alive. My brother's still alive. My three sisters are still alive. And they're all doing really well. There is this theory that some psychologists and philosophers have that goes along this line. No man is completely himself until his father is gone. Do you subscribe to that? I'd have to say that's very, very true. I mean, I used to watch, my father was a devout Catholic. I mean, he would do the Stations of the Cross. He would walk to church and everything else like that. And, uh, you know, I, I, he was very, very into the Lord. And I was never really that devout about him, but I have a feeling that he's up there looking down at me and making sure that everything's okay. I do believe that he believed that, you know, Jesus Christ, he believed that there was a heaven and he believes he's up there with, with his wonderful wife, Dottie. They got two tickets to paradise. Yeah. Eddie, thank you. Thank you so much. For interview. Interview. Thank Appreciate you so that. much. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. And that concludes another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. 
Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media where we share behind the scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.